you know, I may be overstating my own experience, but like, I don't go into a movie to escape. I go to see a miracle happen. Like I want to feel, I, I, I look like for guidance, how to live, how to be, and to feel less alone. When you see your, when you see something you're going through, like in art or in someone else, like in a connection, in a relationship, what happens? You feel a little bit safer to say like, oh, I'm going through this and you know what? It's okay, I'm not the only one going through this. My name is West Gibbons, and welcome back to the Tungsten Originals podcast. You just heard part of my conversation with David Gutnick, writer and director of Materna, which won Best Actress and Best Cinematography at Tribeca and makes its online debut this week. We discussed filmmaking as a form of therapy, the hardest parts about directing a feature debut, and his advice for upcoming directors. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Episode 80 of the Tungsten Originals Podcast. David, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, it's going. You know, movie's coming out in two days. Oh, wow. So, yeah, in theaters in New York and L.A. Wow, I did not know I was catching you right before that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, definitely in the thick of it. Um, but it's good. I'm happy. I'm happy to have, uh, you know, a conversation. Let's geek out. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. So the film you're talking about is your most recent film, Materna, which I feel very lucky for getting the chance to see just a couple nights ago. It's an incredible film. It's your directorial debut, and it has had like really a skyrocketing experience in the festival circuit. Uh, it went to Tribeca and won Best Actress and Best Cinematography, and you got nominated for Best New Director. Um, and I think it's all very well deserved because I really, really enjoyed the film, and I'm excited to pick your brain about it. I've listened to several of your other interviews. And so I'm excited to really just get into the weeds about the story and the process of making it. But before we dive into Materna, I want to learn a little bit more about how you got started as a filmmaker. I know you were in the Sundance Institute and a Gotham Lab Fellow. Um, so I'm just curious. Uh, I also noticed on your IMDb, you have a ton of experience as like an editor. So, um, I'm just curious a little bit about like your journey as a filmmaker and how you ended up to this point where you're making this as your directorial debut, which is a very impressive directorial mm -hmm. debut, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's really kind of you to say. I, I did not grow up in an artistic family. Um, I've always been like really jealous of uh, people who have like whenever I meet somebody who, you know, know their like parent or parents are like a filmmaker or a painter or mm. Or, or, or even like not, or even a therapist, just a therapist, just, you know, people who grew up with like parents that were like intellectually, um, you know, inclined. Present. Always just, like, yeah. oh, wow, wonder what that was like. Um, but um, not to say, you know, I, you know, whatever, my, my parents are fine. Uh, but, um, but yeah. So, you know, my family came here from Ukraine, my parents, my sister, uh, so kind of, I guess, traditional uh, new immigrant uh, mm -hmm. household. Uh, so um, not, didn't really encourage uh, venturing mm -hmm. into the arts. My sister, however, was a, was a, was a rebel. Um, uh, she was, you know, bad girl. Uh, and she wanted to be an actress. She was seven years older. And so for me, like, even though I didn't grow up in an artistic family, 
um that was critical for me because you know she my sister mm -hmm. was my hero i you know grew up like looking up to her she took me to see my first films um you know and i you know i i watched that's pretty much what i did for most of my childhood you know just yeah. watching watching films going to films watching them on television uh in part because i wanted you know to be cool like my sister um and so uh so so yeah so i guess now that i'm really saying it out loud i by virtue of my sister i am by proxy i i did grow up in an artistic household right yeah <laughs> But yeah, so that was really the beginning for me. Um, I I also kind of, you know, my my parents were very old school kind of Russian uh, mentality, and you know, having an actress in the house was just not okay. <laughs> right. So 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 my dad and my sister would fight a lot, and I was always the one kind of pulling them apart. Uh, and so I could, I could never really vocalize, say aloud, like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I also didn't know that that's what I wanted to do. I was just a kid. Um, and so, you know, it was always a bit of a forbidden fruit. So that in part also drove my, uh, my interest and curiosity. Um, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't really announce or verbalize that even when I started, like in college, I was, I was working at the World Bank um, in D.C. And um, I, was, I started working on a documentary. And uh, that was really my first experience um, making. Um, I was shooting these interviews and uh, didn't know how to shoot, but I figured out how to shoot because I had to. And mm -hmm. uh, no one at the bank would edit what I shot. So, uh, there was somebody, there was somebody who I went to college with who taught me how to edit. Um, I was taking like a music, uh, editing class. He was in that class and, uh, he taught me how to, uh, to edit. He, he started the edit on the project and then I took over once I learned. Um, and that was really my first foray. And I was sort of like, what am I doing at the world bank making a movie? Um, and, um, and at that time, I had also written a play. Um, and my my freshman year roommate was a was a uh, was in theater, and he was a like a he wrote plays, he directed. Uh, mm -hmm. So and we stayed close. And when uh, I wrote the play, he was like, "I I want to direct this," and so we we put it up at the Philly Fringe Festival. And wow. the actor. Uh, two weeks before the show had a nervous breakdown uh, because his girlfriend uh, had put a restraining order on him. Uh, so he moved Whoa. to Poland. Uh, and so <laughs> since I was the only one who knew the lines, the director was like, Hey, you want to, you want to just act in this as well? Uh, so I was like, no, but I also wanted, <laughs> I also wanted to, to get made, uh, to get put up. Um, so, so, so then I did that and that was 13 nights um, and really fell in love with the process, you know, being with being with other actors and, you know, engaging and interacting with an audience. And 
And then, yeah, so from that point on, because I had picked up a, this skill at editing at the World Bank, uh, I was able to turn that into, you know, some kind of work uh, mm-hmm. in this, you know, in New York, and uh, eventually uh, went to film school uh, a couple years after. Uh, and but then even at film school, I was uh, I, I continued editing. Like somehow at some mm. point, you know, you you cut one person short. And it does well, and next right. thing you know, everybody wants you to cut their shorts. Yeah. <laughs> next thing you know, that's all you're doing: cutting everybody sh- everybody's mm-hmm. shorts, um, which was its own kind of film school. Uh, yeah. And um, one of the people I had cut a short for uh, ended up making a feature, and uh, and and so I uh, she asked me to cut that feature uh, for her with her, and so that's that project brought me to the, to the Gotham labs that brought me to the Sundance labs. We ended up, uh, the project got into the, the Sundance edit lab where mm. they take, you know, two films, they bring the director and the editor to the Sundance lab, same time as the director, director and writer lab, screenwriter labs. Um, yeah. And so that film ended up going to Sundance and uh, doing well. A movie called Nancy that. Uh, okay. I was wondering if it was Nancy. Gotcha. Yeah. That introduced me to a uh, kind of new uh, world of mm-hmm. possible collaborators. And uh, so, so, really, after that experience, I was, you know, I cut a few other features. Uh, this movie, Braid. That played at Tribeca, um, and uh, one other feature um, called Four. Mm-hmm. It's it had an interesting life. I came on after they tried, you know, they tried for Sundance and South by and Tribeca, the you know that uh, whole thing, um, the Ivy Leagues, uh, right. and um, and they didn't get in. And then I came on. Um, but it ended up having a nice life, uh, and they went to the LA Film Festival where they won Best Ensemble, uh, and Emery Cohen was in it. It was like one of his first. Um, hmm. Had a really uh, um, uh, Naomi King, um, and had a nice nice cast, um, and uh, it was sort of like an Altman esque uh, canvas where you have just this sort of day in the life. Um, intersecting storylines um, mm-hmm. and something that's a really kind of made in the edit movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and then it ended up getting like a indie spirit nom, and uh, so hmm. really had a nice life for itself. And and that was that was my actually my first feature edit. So that was that's always special. So yeah, so I'd cut these these three films and. And then that's when I was like, uh, let's 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 make uh, see if I can put something together here. Yeah. So when you're editing and working so close so closely with directors, mm-hmm. like, are you in that moment thinking, I wish I could be in their seat telling the editor what to do, <laughs> or or I wish I could be in the writers' room or something like that? Like, were you? Um, I don't. I, I mean, I wouldn't put it like that. Um, yeah. You know, I I I did really love editing. And I still mm-hmm. love editing. Um, it's a very, you know, sacred, special, and privileged space. 
mm-hmm. um, to be there on your own uh, and to be there with the director. I, I, I felt like I love that relationship, you know, the trust, the bond, uh, the collaboration. Um, you know, anybody who's ever made a film knows that when you're done shooting and you're in the edit, you're very vulnerable, very fragile. Yeah. You don't know yeah. what's what. Uh, you, you hate yourself a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You look at your footage and you're like, what the hell did I do? Yeah. Uh, like, you know, I just want to crawl into a hole and, and, and come out like maybe a year later. Um, and um, so, you know, that's so when you're, when you're, when you're with a director who's in that headspace, you're more than just a, an editor. You're, you're a you're a friend you're a you're a therapist you're somebody there to hold a hand um so i'm not sitting there and thinking oh i wish i were you on the contrary i'm like damn it must be so hard being you <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> um you know there's a little bit of safety for an editor your ego isn't as much on the line right um and and i think part of why i gravitated to the edit uh first is because of where i was coming from because i had a fear of of you know really like saying oh i'm a filmmaker you know or like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna make movies because because uh that's something i just didn't want to like because i had memories of my you know my sister and like yeah the whole you know where my 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 origin story with that so mm-hmm. it was still forbidden fruit for me when i was in the edit <laughs> you know? so it so it made sense for me to uh to be there first because i'm just sort of tiptoeing my way in you know mm-hmm. um right and uh dancing around the thing um mm-hmm. but it was a great place for me to uh to 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 be and learn so no i i i i don't think i was uh thinking about it that way that being said um you know i not to be coy but like you know i like myself i think i'm interesting i think i'm cool but i don't think i'm that interesting or that cool that i'm the only person i want to spend most of my time with <laughs> um good. and when you're in the ed- when you're editing you're spending most of your most of your yeah. time in life alone um mm-hmm. in a dark room um and you know i am you know i i am a loner at you know at heart as well i I, you know i'm social and and a loner um but uh Mm -hmm. loner learner loner um and so like i feel at home in the edit but at the same time i wanted more contact i wanted to be in dialogue with with the other artists, with the cinematographer, with the production designer, with, uh, with the writer, with, um, with, you know, every head of department, everyone in the process. So that's why I wanted to, to make the, make that transition. Um, right. I still love editing. Gotcha. I still would love to, you know, edit people's films if they'll have me. Gotcha. So 
after going on this journey of being an editor, along comes Materna, which is the reason I reached out to you, the reason why we're here. Um, so I want to read uh, the log line. Materna is a closely observed psychological portrait of four women whose lives are bound together by an incident on the New York City subway. Um, like I said at the beginning of this interview, I got to watch it a couple nights ago, and I was really floored by it. Um, because from what I could tell from the trailer and just like the materials that I had publicly access to, um, it, it seemed as if the subway was going to be like more of a deal than it was and not in a bad way. Like, I think that's an interesting way to suck people in. But um, we come back to the subway as this meeting point for four total strangers who are not related in any way. And as I just said from the logline, they're bound by this one violent incident. Um, but I loved how you intertwined, um, hopefully people can go see it in theaters, um, so they can, New York you know, experience LA. it. New York and LA. Yeah. And actually one, uh, one, uh, it's also going to be in Dallas. Great. Well, yeah, we'll put descript, uh, links to all that info in the description so people can figure out how to best see it where they are. It's, I would love to experience this in a theater much rather than my, uh, laptop. So <laughs> if you're in one of those places, I suggest seeing it. But we come back to the subway and we see these four strangers reacting to this event. And then we're introduced to a character. And then we kind of go down the rabbit hole of who that person is and explore maybe 20 to 30 minutes of their life. And we learn about them. Um, I've, I've listened, like I said, I've listened to a lot of your interviews. Um, and you said that this was written from a very vulnerable place. Both you and your co-writers were all in this very vulnerable state. Do you prefer or enjoy working from that state because i was also reading um your epk talking about how you know and you hinted at it um growing up in your family the men didn't really talk about emotions you know the the, the idea was to just not address it so do you do you enjoy tapping into that and exploring that on like this stage kind of like to the public it's an interesting question um I don't know that I would say I enjoy feeling bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> um, but maybe I secretly do. Maybe we all secretly do. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think obviously pain is a very raw and ripe place to work from and, you know, pr has provided great source material <laughs> for art. <laughs> Uh, since its inception um, right. and uh, unfortunately it's a good place to work from but it never mm -hmm. you know I wouldn't say it's something I enjoy <laughs> yeah um, for sure but but yeah I guess you could say this was a particularly um, vulnerable uh, place of uh, origin for a project well I think it's similar to like how you were talking about with um an editor to a director is often a therapist. I think of like, I I'm in post-production for a short that's like super personal and comes from a very vulnerable state. So I, and, and it's a similar thing where it's like, it's been hard and, uh, in every stage from pre to post, you know? Um, but it's also, I think like the most honest way to tell a story. So it feels even more like genuine. And I think the crew rallies behind that and then hopefully the audience will rally behind that. I just think people, mm -hmm. whether you're a filmmaker or not a filmmaker, I think people can just tell like if it's coming from a really true place, you know, and if that happens to be a very vulnerable 
state, then that's just the most honest way to tell mm-hmm. that story, you know? Yeah. I think it's interesting that this takes place in New York. I just spent six months living and working in New York and, um, it was, it's, I am from Mississippi. I'm in my hometown mm-hmm. right now. Uh, mm-hmm. 8,000 people here. So very different. I, I think yeah. there's probably in Mississippi. I'm just South of Memphis, yeah, Tennessee, uh, Cenotopia. Mm-hmm. No one's probably ever heard of that, but, um, yeah, it's just South of like Cenotopia. an hour South of Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. That's where you were born and raised. Yeah. I've been here my whole life. Well, except for college and stuff like that. So it's funny because it's got "sinna" in the in the in the word, like "sinna." That's like a you know, cinematic cinema. Oh yeah, ex- cinema. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I grew up. I can see from where I'm sitting right now the family-owned movie theater that's across the street mm. from my house that I grew up going to. So, oh, so um, okay, that's that's interesting. So that obviously yeah. that helped. Yeah, totally. And you were filmmakers or aspiring. Uh, there are in your in your town or where you're from but obviously it had an effect on you i tend to think it's just me but <laughs> I, I hope i'm wrong i hope there are others but it's funny you're talking about that you're jealous of growing up from a of other people who grew up in an artistic family my mom is an art teacher and my brother and sister are musicians so oh wow and go. my grandma my grandmothers are all like painters and stuff so that's so cool i grew up in an artistic family for sure <laughs> mine are all science oriented so. nice i went to a math and science high school so I have that in me as well, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I lived I in November to May. I lived and worked in New York as a COVID PA on Law & Order SVU. So really high profile mm. stuff. Mm. Um, yeah. But it was interesting. My, my sister's PA is, but that sounds like it's something. definitely something that you got to mm-hmm. be the first person. I had so many 5 a.m. call times because like they have to check in with me first and I got to ask them all the questions and take the temperature and stuff. It's that's crazy. It's grunt work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a very like, like working on law and order is such a New York way to experience New York, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but it was, it was cool. I got to like go to places that I never would have gone, you mm-hmm. know, like the Mets stadium. Like I got to be there <laughs> and you know, stuff like that. It was really interesting. Initiation. Yeah, exactly. you like really thrown in, head first mm-hmm. both in the industry and in new york city as a place in the best way i think um and so yeah it was really interesting to feel the energy of the city and you know take the subway all the time i know you're from brooklyn and have lived there your whole life so it's second nature just as me living in my small hometown is second nature obviously um but have you always been interested in new york as like a backdrop for a story because I think this is like such a New York story, even though it's not explicitly making it like, yes, it happens on the New York city subway, obviously, but just thinking about how these characters are so isolated and, um, dealing with their problems very internally, uh, I actually was reading the electronic, your EPK and your co-writer Asal said that when she was t- talking about the story that she was like the vulnerable part of her life that she was writing from was she was getting over, um, or I should say experiencing the grief of the loss of her uncle. And she said that New York city doesn't have time for death. I thought that was really powerful because, um, you know, you're sitting on the subway, you're not supposed to make eye contact. Everyone's dealing with something, <laughs> you know, and everyone is having the worst day of their lives, or at least it can kind of seem sometimes. Um, so has that been something that you've like paid attention paid attention to growing up there is 
how everyone's kind of in this public space and it's one of the most densely populated places in the country yet it can be so isolating. Yeah. I mean, you said it, you said it more articulately than, you know, than I could. It's, it's, it's harder for people who are from a place to be able to describe it as well as you just did. <laughs> well, <thank> um, you. <laughs> um, we all clean up nice. Uh, right. But if we, you know, if you're wearing a pair of like x-ray specs where you could like look through and see what someone's actually feeling and, uh, the heaviness in their heart and what's going on uh it wouldn't look as nice <laughs> you know yeah um and right. so i don't think this is something that's exclusive to new york uh, i think it's just mm-hmm. it's something exclusive to you know being a human being but it is um the screws are a little tighter out here because mm-hmm. everybody is always you know in public spaces and having to share them and on top right. of each other um mm-hmm. so uh so yeah and I, I i love the train i i i a lot of people like from the city don't uh especially if you're traveling in rush hour and it could get exhausting but i'm like whenever i whenever i'd be in a train it's like sort of like my zen space like even if it's even if it's like really dense and raw i'm just like yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> right I, I i i love i love that energy and 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 I don't think I'm unique in saying like, I love to like, just take, you know, take in, take everybody in on the train. Um, right. And, um, even if people aren't looking, they're looking, they're feeling like what's going on. Are you familiar with Vim vendors? I don't think so. German filmmaker. Um, he made a movie called wings of desire, uh, with Bruno Ganz. Um, they, uh, basically an angel who can hear people's thoughts. He like falls in love with, with a human and is like, all right, I don't want to be an angel anymore. I want to like join the human race so I could <laughs> be with this person yeah. and talk to her. So there's this shot, uh, in the, in, in the film, it's like a, it's like a tracking shot on the train. And as you're passing, like somebody, a person, you hear their thoughts mm. and it's, it's the perspective of the angel. The track mm-hmm. shot is the angel's POV. And, uh, you know, so you pass someone like, oh, I got to do my laundry. And I don't know. I got to scrub up some change. And then you go to the next person like, my mother did it. Mm-hmm. Oh, this one cheated on, you know, so, uh, this one's, you know, money problems. This one's suicidal. So it's like, you know, uh, I watched that film, full disclosure, like really stoned. Uh, (laughs) and I remember that shot. I remember like thinking to myself, like, this is what cinema is. (laughs) This is what it's about, you know? Yeah. And then I thought it was, I thought it was really profound. I'm like, okay, I get it. I get what art is about. about. Um, about really kind like coming as close as possible to like what it's like to live in somebody else's skin. Um, mm. you can't do mm. that, right? We're like limited by our bodies and space and time and, uh, and what that means and how that generates empathy, like, um, what it's like to really see the world through someone else's eyes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think I was like consciously aware of mm-hmm. that, um, reference, uh, when I was making the film and conceiving of the film. As a matter of fact, I, I wasn't, uh, 
but you know, like that idea of like just being around these other people and like everybody is going through shit. Yeah, that was something that was definitely a part of the uh, of the you know vision for the movie and what why we why we did it in the first place. Well, I think the subway, even in my limited subway rider experience i think the subway is the perfect place for it because whenever the the act happens and i don't want to spoil anything but whenever the event happens that connects all these people you literally like you have to deal with it it has to be confronted so like in the same breath that you have to confront this you know physical force in the subway when you're in between stations and the train's going and you literally can't leave the characters have to confront the the undertow of that we've all just learned about them you know like their struggles that they're going through the subway is like an incubator in a way where it all boils like it's the perfect place to boil over if if that event happened above ground everyone can just run away and not address sure. it yeah everybody's trapped yeah you're trapped in a way yes forced to deal with each other and face each other yeah yeah i mean that's that's you know maybe i just went on my own little riff with this film and didn't really answer your question but like <laughs> The New Yorkness of this for me is like there is a tension between being totally isolated, but also, you know, in this very communal existence, mm -hmm. you know, we share, you know, we're all on top of each other. We share these public spaces. We share these trains together. And there is a feeling of like we are a part of a community yeah. um, just be by virtue of the physical proximity Right. And, you know, the public nature of transportation and things like that. And, uh, you know, coffee shops, we all pass each other, you know, like buildings, apartment buildings. Most people aren't living in houses. Um, so mm -hmm. there is this very communal existence. But at the same time, you feel very isolated and alone. Um, mm -hmm. And especially when you're in a public space. Uh, right. In a crowd. So that tension, I think when you're saying the thing that's relatable about the New York experience, it's, that's something I guess we naturally, as the, the three of us who wrote the film together, uh, all mm -hmm. grew up in uh, New York. So mm. that came through. Well, especially because of the structure of the film, because you're moving between uh, these kind of chamber pieces uh, where people are alone in their homes and then zoom out and they're on a train and so you're moving between these spaces that are completely, you know, depopulated to heavily populated. And it also shows how, like, one seemingly uh, minute, inconsequential decision ha can have such a domino effect. Like right. the final character that we're introduced to, she's gonna take a ta she's gonna take a taxi, and then it's like, I'll just take the train. And then, oh, now she's <laughs> subjected to this experience. You know, I think it's interesting mm -hmm. uh, exploring that butterfly mm -hmm. butterfly effect of um how we're constantly making those like consequential decisions even though we think we're not you know like right. you never know what's going to happen you know it's really interesting i'm curious you had uh two co-writers two of the other actresses um they're also multiple editors multiple dps mm -hmm. how did you keep as the director you know um the leader of this team how did you keep a unified vision or was part of the thought process that you wanted a modge podge of experiences because i think something that's really cool from an audience perspective is 
like you can get anyone can get something from this film i think even if you disagree with the characters because it explores a lot of um you know political issues in a way i know that wasn't the original intention but it just ended up happening by way of mm -hmm. what you are exploring mm -hmm. but I, I think like i get something from this my, my parents could get something from this um i just think it does have a wide audience because mm -hmm. you're exploring for individuals that are strangers you know it's not just about one person having a singular experience um in a lot of ways it's just about the human condition as a whole you know so was that part of the goal to just like we do our publicity <laughs> I'm, hey i'm i'm available <laughs> i'm free um but did you want to create kind of a mosaic which is also like again new york is the best place to have a mosaic when the first thing like whenever i got off the airplane and got to my first subway the first thing i noticed was like i've never heard so many languages before you know mm -hmm. like it, it was so cool being surrounded by so many people that i'd never interacted with before so New York is, I think, the uh, the melting pot of the melting pot of the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. Was that an intentional choice, or did it just happen that way to create that mosaic? Well, the multiple writers happened um, just kind of spontaneously. We were all kind of dealing with our own shit, and um, right. and I had been having conversations with them uh, separately, and so. Um, and everything we were dealing with was kind of a variation on the same theme. And, uh, and so, uh, and so that kind of organically, uh, happened as far as the DPs, since you've seen the film, you know, like each character's vignette for lack of a better word, uh, was shot kind of slavishly from the perspective of the character mm -hmm. of, the, of, of that main character. Um, and so that had, uh, style you know stylistic consequences so if we're if we're really being true to a point of view and what that's going to look like it's going to look different because we all have a right. different point of view mm -hmm. um we all made of different stuff um and so like the body of the film uh had to be an emotional and psychological kind of extension uh of mm -hmm. the character and her point of view so you know, I think you could say that all these DPs are brilliant and uh, you can't peg them down to like, you know, you can't put them in a box. Mm -hmm. Each one of them could have shot the film by themselves and it would have been, you know, beautiful in its own way and different. But, you know, we were just trying to be super rigorous about making sure that each one, the person who shot was right for that. Um, mm. So, you know, right. the that the, that the tone and feel and texture would be right um, between in that connection between the, the person who's shooting and, and the subject, uh, the actor. Mm -hmm. So, so it really came from that um, more than anything else, just making sure that the fit was right. So whenever you're working with your DPs on these different vignettes, do you have any uh, movies that you're referencing that fit the perspective of this character or, or was it purely the source material? Because with Mona's vignette, a film that it reminded me of was good time by the Safdie brothers, which is like totally a tonal different film in so many ways, but it's not afraid to get up close. The camera's always moving and it's like almost always dealing in this kind of framing, you know? Um, and it also takes place in New York. So did you discuss with your DPs like, okay, so for this vignette, you know, let's, 
use this film as a reference or was it just purely the source material? Well, I think it was the source material first. Right. We started with character, you know, that was everything else was secondary. So subjectivity was like rule number one. Uh, and then as far as, uh, you know, there was another question that was, that was driving, uh, was this question of how do you photograph, uh, absence, mm. um, you know, cause each of them are dealing with some kind of invisible force, uh, that is weighing on them, you know, that they're rest, you know, wrestling with these demons that are kind of physically, literally not there, but there. So how do you right. capture that emotionally and psychologically in an image? Um, so those questions were central. You know, it's not like, so we were starting from from in and moving out as opposed to starting, well, here's what, here's some cool, here's some cool stuff we love. And let's, um, that being said, I'd be lying if I didn't say that like film and film history is uh, uh, like a, like a place that I, like to work from and go back to. So yeah, I mean, when we were shooting uh, one of the stories in Kyrgyzstan, my DP and I were just watching Ozu on a loop. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting that you said the Safdie brothers, I would go further back um, to John Cassavetes um, for, uh, for Mona's story, you know, movies like Opening Night and uh, Woman mm -hmm. Under the Influence, Husbands, um, big fan of Lynn Ramsey's early work, especially Morvan, Call Morvan Caller. Uh, so like that film really kind of, I think for me, personifies and captures something that I've been talking about, about like using like psychic space, like what, mm -hmm. like, you know, a character's perspective um, and turning that into like narrative, turning that, into driving action and tension like that's something that lynn ramsey especially in that film like for me is just like a masterpiece of like we are so in her perspective we are so in her headspace and it doesn't it almost doesn't even matter if there's a plot i mean there is a plot right. yeah. but it's like where's she gonna take me because i am so yeah. close to her thoughts and the way they tick and move and you know her her anxiety her heartbeat i the, 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 it, everything is moving to that beat um and so plot or no plot be damned like i'm gonna go mm -hmm. with you wherever you go <laughs> um yeah i mean i think I, I i talked about ozu for one story but it's really you know uh i think that was a big one the stillness the wide shots um the slowness from the beginning did you know you wanted to tackle these themes through a story about motherhood not that it's only about motherhood, but like, you know, the film's called Materna. We see these characters that are dealing with motherhood in some form or fashion, whether as a daughter or as a mother. Was that uh, early on or did you stumble upon that later in the writing process? The mommy issues? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, that was early on. Okay. <laughs> we, we, that's sort of what brought, part of what brought, brought us uh, co-writers together. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, and then I'm curious if on set, you know, I, you of course know as a director that you have to really be thinking on your toes on set and it's a stressful situation, you know, sun's going down. So there, there are moments, David Fincher said, like, you know what kind of a director you are when the sun's going down uh, and you have, 
you have to get four shots. We only have time for two. You know, when you're back into a corner, you have to make those decisions. I think those times are where the best stuff is captured, uh, even if it's something that wasn't written like if the if the actor tries something in those scenarios i often at least in my experience when it's happened to me it's better than what i ever could have thought it had been did you have any experiences like that on set that were like a eureka moment or that you had to make a decision um that you think had a really positive impact because i know like you uh i learned from the other interviews that um and I was wondering when I was watching, like, did they rent out a subway car? Like, how did they do this? I know you, you ended up stealing that location <laughs> during a 13 hour overnight with extras, which is incredible. And I can only imagine how stressful that was <laughs> as a director and producer and everybody. Um, but was there a moment on set that you thought like, we're doing it. We're really like, this is what I've been working towards this whole time. I mean, circumstances are always invading. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, as you said, the Fincher, or I don't know, was the Fincher quote about four? You have time for four right. to get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had something like that where maybe even exactly that, and it was mm. just like we got two, right? Uh, two whites, you know, one from one side and one from the. We, I mean, really, we only had time for one of those, but like mid shot, we we're like, all right. <laughs> run to the other side of the train <laughs> right <laughs> so we all just ran to the other side of the train and just picked it you know you know no no calling cut and just picked it up and all right let's keep going <laughs> yeah exactly get rest. yeah i love those moments it's because it's so like it's everyone on their crew i feel like is operating like all cylinders are firing you know it's like mm -hmm. who cares about the slate like you're kind of throwing those rules out the window it's like as long as we're recording what's <laughs> needs to be recorded mm -hmm. we'll figure it out later and then it's like when it works it's such a sigh of relief <laughs> you know like yes we did hit record on that moment we, we did capture it um i i think it's interesting how this film tackles isolation so much and we, we've been talking about new york city a lot um obviously this is a very new york story and I think New York is a great place to explore that isolation as we've covered. It's almost um, poetic justice. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but it's almost ironic that you're now in this like distribution process and festival process when we've never been more isolated, you know, like obviously with the pandemic, I know people are tired about talking about the pandemic, but uh, has that like do you think that's influenced a lot about how people are reacting to the film because especially like in new york i mean we're talking about the subway a lot you know it it shut down for the first time in decades for them to clean it overnight i know that was like a that's kind of the signal of like how serious COVID was obviously new york was the epicenter um and my sister was living there uh is living there and, and she experienced it during the epicenter so i've heard stories about how terrible that was but do you think that that is having a big impact on how people are reacting to the film and maybe how you're reacting to the material like with this newfound perspective I, this this may sound like a dodge but the truth is you know we're really going to be opening up the film to the public you know in a couple of days uh and uh more widely uh, in a week from now. So, you know, we were, we were 
supposed to open Tribeca 2020. That's where we won the awards. So we have been doing, you know, we were in feedback screen, you know, feedback screens constantly prior to then. So we had, so we were getting a lot of, you know, there was a feedback loop and a response, knowing how people were, were, were reacting to the film. This was before the plague. And then, and then once the pandemic happened, we weren't really showing the film to a lot of people. Uh, it was really just festival juries and then, uh, and then screening virtually. Uh, so there's not that much contact with, with audiences right. when you're screening that way. I have heard enough of a response from people like, Whoa, like this is what we're going through. Like, this is crazy. Um, but it's, it's interesting because, you know, we didn't write it. We wrote, we wrote it before the pandemic. Yeah. So I can't like take credit for that. You know? right. I think maybe what I would say is perhaps what it's saying is that we were more isolated than we thought we were. If the feeling could be so similar before an app, you know, before and after, I don't know. I just pulled that one out of my, that just, that thought just, you know, like, I'm <laughs> that, just was a, that was a good thought. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> soundbite for sure. I mean, I don't even know if that's true, but like, I guess you can make that case. I think, yeah, I think so. Um, it's put in because we had what was normal and now that normal has forever changed. So our perspective has forever changed. So I think a lot of people are looking at how they lived their life pre 2020 and, mm -hmm. you know, did I like mm -hmm. say, I love you enough and stuff like, you know, simple, mm -hmm. like really basic things like that. It just totally, mm -hmm. totally upended things. Um, I'm curious with your editing experience, um, you talked about for the feature film that you edited that was really made in the edit. I think of this film as a similar, I've never, I haven't seen for, so I don't know how much of a comparison, but it seems similar and where this was made in the edit because you have these intertwining storylines and, you know, we're going back to the subway as like the, the backbone of it. Do you think your experience as an editor like, did you feel more prepared going in post-production because of that? 100%. I would say, I mean, I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think, and maybe I shouldn't have said about four, said it about, put it that way about four. I mean, it was, there are the films like, you know, like a Hitchcock film or like a, fin a Fincher film where, you know, every cut is almost pre-designed. Um you know, and then there's the kind of film where, like, every you, you know, there's DNA strands. Yeah. You have this and this and this, and then we'll figure out how it all works in the edit. Yeah. Um, or, like, here's your coverage. You're wide, you're medium, you're close. And then in the end, we'll figure it in the edit, we'll figure out how, how all that comes together. There was more of the you know the former of like there were shot ideas and a sense of when things would cut and so that like my editing experience came through there there was some dis well there's always discovery there better be discovery because you're rewriting your movie <laughs> in the edit and if, if yeah. you're not then you're doing something wrong but mm. uh but i would say especially when it came to the order um, that is where something we really had to crack. That was a Rubik's cube. 
uh, and you know the way it was written. It's not in that sense was not the way it uh, the way it shook out uh, in the edit. Um, but as far as within stories, you know, it was very you know that that edit didn't take very long. Like within yeah. stories, the edit was like a couple couple weeks. So throughout this process, I know um, from one of my one of the interviews of yours that I listened to, um, it seemed at least that it was kind of a relatively quick process from pre-production to you just immediately went into casting and then started shooting. You know, it was pretty um, mm -hmm. one thing after the other. Um, mm -hmm. Throughout this whole process, how did you grow as a director? Wow. I don't know. I hope I grew some. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we um, all I think every project like no matter if you're like me and working in the shorts world right out of film school or mm -hmm. someone like uh Fincher or something like I I hope every project makes us grow I grew old I yeah. put on like you know I, I gained a couple of grays you know I only <laughs> yeah. lost about 10 years of my life <laughs> that's but that's every film <laughs> yeah exactly yeah we got to slow down we'll be I don't know how anyone makes like i don't know 30 films 20 it's like at some point you just i would imagine it's like you know you start aging in reverse it's like benjamin button <laughs> i think what you're really asking is can you can you offer or provide any not that i am some sage wise you know like here's i i got information for you that really like i, I mean who am i <laughs> but um but if but if there's anything I can impart, because a lot of a lot of a lot of your uh, audience is it's just probably just you know trying to get their first features made, yeah. I know many people trying to do that. <laughs> okay, so uh, just a couple. I would say a couple of things. One, there's people joke about how like casting is like 99% of the job of a director. It's more than that. Mm -hmm. 99.9999999999999 you can still fuck it up even if you cast right that's why uh 99.9999 and not 100 you cast wrong i don't know how you overcome that but um you know mike lee jokes about somebody asked him like you know directors always can't stand watching their own films like famous directors talk about how painful it is it's like yeah i don't really have that problem and um you know granted he's very privileged he makes movies over the course of like four or five years um, mm. with actors separately. They don't have a script. They're coming up with the script together. The actors doesn't. The actors don't know what the other actors are doing or what their other storyline is. You know, which is to say, when most directors look at their movies, there are regrets. So like, oh, right. I cast right. this person. And you always have regrets. Right. Um, because it's impossible to live life without those. But you, you know, like, oh, that person, that's not the person I wanted for that role. This, you know, was going to trigger financing. And it's just, that's what, I made a compromise there. Um, you know, I just really wanted to shoot and we had to go. So we made this error, this hiring error the day before because I was desperate. You know, there's a joke in, uh, not the joke. There's a, a line in Mad Men where uh, I forget which season, but basically he's like, you know, a snake when it's starving could eat too much and it'll kill the snake. So like when we're starving to make our films, when we're desperate, that's when we're at our most dangerous to ourselves. That's mm -hmm. when we make, uh, that's when we compromise for the sake of getting it done. 
Now you could say, well, perfect is the enemy of the good. But then you really got to measure what that compromise is and whether it's a compromise you're willing to live with and whether you're going to be able to live with when you watch it after the fact. Which is to say that hiring is everything. Mm -hmm. You're gonna, you're not gonna listen to me because everybody's got to make their own mistakes. You tell a kid like, you know, that's hot, don't touch it, and then you know the baby touches it because it wants to know for itself, and then it's like ah. So like you're gonna, everybody's got to go through their ah, no matter what anybody tells them. I think we're tempted to buy our own hype and sip our own Kool Aid about ourselves. Mm when we think we can overcome anything like if you're not the best actor or if you're not a real act or you're not an act or you're not I'll overcome it my talent will overcome it uh, my will will overcome it mm -hmm. no it won't <laughs> you can be yeah. God's greatest gift to humanity and the biggest genius on planet earth if you do not have the team the right team around you you will still fail uh, so, you know, team beats talent any day of the week. Um, yeah, as a sports sports metaphor, but it applies to everything, whether you're a cast on Broadway, uh, you know, or, 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 or a crew or, you know, like I would say if there's anything I did well on this, it's, it's, uh, it's, applying a very rigorous, rigorous standard to hiring practices. If we weren't in love with our cinematographer, if we weren't in love with our actor, if we weren't in love with the producer, no shooting. No shooting hmm. happens until, and so what does it mean to be in love? That it's the most talented person I could find, somebody whose work I'm obsessed with, but also somebody who's absolutely right for this one-to-one -one hmm. shady region, not a little bit shady one-to-one. -one. And again, that goes back to like why three cinematographers, right? It was that, it was that, you know, um, it was that level of specificity. And granted we were working on a micro micro budget. So we had the luxury and privilege of having that kind of, uh, uh, kind of totalitarian control uh, over our choice making. Um, but, uh, but still, and then as far as the actors go, like, and this is not to say actors are animals. I'm, this is not the Hitchcock thing where it's like actors are cattle. No. And I don't think you really believe that anyway. Um, especially in some films where, you know, it, it was clear that he was in love, uh, with his actors. Um, so like you cast a goat, to play a goat you don't cast a goat to play a possum <laughs> yeah you know you cast a possum to play a possum like we like yes we all contain multitudes yes like an actor can really stretch if they're talented and play a lot but like constitutionally temperamentally like the soul of a person the spirit animal whatever 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 you connect with in this analogy uh now I went so far in this to, as to like, actually people are playing themselves. So like, that's like a little further than people are going to go for most of their films. But even with Caitlin Sheil and Lindsay Burge, like Caitlin Sheil contains multitudes and is a lot of different people, but 
she you know, she's not Jean. She's not that person. But like that level of like you know what I'm talking about? That I know exactly that, what you're talking about. That yeah. intro, like you didn't have to fake that. You know, Lindsay Burge, somebody who has a reputation, you know, like a earned reputation for like being courageous and taking on roles, characters, you know, that aren't necessarily likable in the traditional sense. And mm -hmm. like, you know, this is somebody who needed to be that, who's saying things that aren't palatable. Um, uh, like, so it's got to be there. It's got to be in the bones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Can't just be, oh, I love this person. And I've got to put them in a film, no matter no matter what it is, and it doesn't matter if the character fits. Because when we're starting out, there is that. It's like, oh, I just I love this is just a, we'll, we'll put you in it and it'll it'll work. Yeah, man, you got to check check. It's it's got to check all the boxes, and you got to really be rigorous. Um, you can't be willy nilly about this. Um, it seems self evident, but it isn't. Um. You're going to have to do that. You're not going to listen to anything I say, but that's fine. We all have to do no, that. I'm still going to do that many right. times in your life over because I don't know it all, but I know this. Yeah. I would also say uh, something I learned. You're As a director, you're always wrong. When something, like when there is a conflict, when there is a breakdown in communication, it's your fault. Hmm. Always your fault. No matter how bad the other person is, no matter how much they don't get it, no matter how much they don't get you, the much however much they don't understand what you're going through, it's still your fault. It's your responsibility to manage and make sure everyone is happy. Mm -hmm. Because you're the director. Period. Yeah. No matter how shitty everyone is, it's still always your fault. I love that. I, I'm so glad you talked about like how your actors were kind of playing themselves. That's such a similar thing to what I just what I just did and am currently, I guess, doing with this short that I had this in post production. It's about a family dealing with Alzheimer's and how that can rip apart a family, but also bring it together. And it's like hmm. almost autobiographical with my own experience. But my lead actor, um, we had so many conversations about like our shared experience of dealing with our grandparents and all that kind of stuff. And it was just so like, we almost had the same experience. Like we started knowing all these similarities. Like I have a family member named a name that he has a family member with the same name. Like it's just, we were so in tune with each other that it just made it the whole process that much easier and yeah. so much better. So I love that. That's I've got one more question for you and I want to lead into it with this quote from your EPK. Um, mm -hmm. It's a quote from you, so apologies for reading your own words back to you. I'll try to do it justice. But you said, my own belief is that people don't watch films to escape, but in the hopes of seeing their secret struggles given a voice, of seeing languages used not to lie, but to reveal the truth. Isn't that the dream of cinema? I'm curious. Yeah, and that references back to the, to the opening uh, quote of uh, Fincher's quote saying that yeah. people invented language to lie to each other. Yeah, exactly. Um, this film, I think, fully deservedly so, has had a great festival process. It's been picked up by Utopia, which is a great company. Um, whenever this episode is coming out, it'll be able to be seen by people. What do you hope people get from this experience? Like, in, in that cathartic, almost therapeutic sense of seeing 
their secret struggles on screen. What's your biggest hope for the audience? I, you know, I may be overstating my own experience, but like, I don't go into a movie to escape. I go to see a miracle happen. Like I want to feel, I, I look like for guidance, how to live, how to be, um, and, and to feel less alone. When you see your, when you see something you're going through, like in art or in someone else, like in a connection, in a relationship, what happens? You make a connect, you feel less alone. You feel a little bit safer to say like, oh, I'm going through this and you know what? It's okay. I'm not the only one going through this. Like that's a, you know, we spend a lot of our lives online. Most of our lives online. And most of how, you know, how we talk about how we present in the world, we clean up nice in, in the physical space. Well, how do we, you know, how do we present ourselves in digital space? We're always presenting our best lives. Anybody who's alive, who's being honest, knows they're not always living their best life. From, you know, um, so, so the space to feel less alone in like being able to say, well, you know what, like, I don't, I don't feel like great, and and here's why, like that. Is shrinking uh in uh so i mean increasingly you have like a, an almost performative aspect in digital space where you could talk about your vulnerabilities but like that's it's still not honest now yeah. You know? yeah um so like i think when we see art that like really touches us we're talking about art that like really isn't it's not dressed up. It's not selling us something. It's just like, okay, yeah, this is, this, this feels true. This feels real. Um, so, and when we, when we experience that, we feel a little bit less alone and we feel like we've had like safer to, um, to move forward and heal, whatever, grow, address, confront. So I think not to be all highfalutin about it, but that's <laughs> what I look for when I go. I don't think I'm alone in looking for that. Yeah, and I think when we when we see that and we recognize that in people who uh you know, strangers on a screen uh who don't necessarily come from the same place we do, you know, maybe maybe that creates a little bit more empathy cuz you know, right now there's not I mean, <laughs> we could use a little more of that. <laughs> um you know we're not saving the world here but like (laughs) just because we're not saving the world doesn't mean we can't aspire to that and i don't mean it this literally but like okay there's no objectivity in journalism right but when there's when, when you have an outlet or publication that isn't aspiring to objectivity well that's a problem right yeah so like just because there is no objectivity, just because there is no objective truth, just because we're not saving the world. Like when people stop aspiring to those things, you know, that, that traditionally you would hope they would, well, then we have a problem. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So like whether we can actually help create more empathy in the world, but if we're not aspiring to it, I don't know. I love that. No, I love that. I think that's, I could not agree more. And I, and I think, you know, 
like I said, I'm lucky to get to see this a little bit early than it's released, but I totally, I think it aligns with that perfectly. Mm -hmm. Like I, it made me feel less alone and it gave me a new perspective on things. So, you know, I thank you for making it. Yeah. I truly enjoyed it. Appreciate yeah. That. And it's, it's so deserving of all its success and I can't wait for other people to see it. Uh, I'm just giddy to tell everyone I know to watch it. Um, and you know, congrats on distribution and everything. Uh, it's I think my dog got in my room. Um, but, <laughs> uh, it's just, I love it. So congratulations. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. This has been fun. Yeah. Thanks for reaching out. Good talking. Of course. All right, y'all. Episodes come out every Monday. We've been a little sporadic because uh, I'm planning a lot of upgrades to the podcast. But uh, yeah, links in the description to all of David's work. Check out his website. Check out Materna. And I think everyone will love it. Thank you again, David. This has been fun. Thanks.